John 9, beginning in verse 13. Remember, Jesus has healed a man who was blind from birth. And this is about whom the text speaks. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and washed me and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them saying, is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if one confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said he is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give glory or give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, why? This is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you are completely born in sins. And are you teaching us? And they cast him out. And thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for these words of yours. We pray that you would bless the reading and preaching of them by your spirit for your glory. And in the name of Christ, we do pray. Amen. You may be seated. Early in his ministry, our Lord Jesus taught his disciples and he teaches us through his word today. This is stated in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were 
before you. Jesus lets us know that there are going to be times where we are persecuted for his namesake, for doing what he has called us to do and believing what he calls us to believe. And yet as 1 Peter 4 tells us, but let none of you suffer as an evildoer. We aren't to incur shame upon ourselves for our own sins. That's not praiseworthy. But Jesus does encourage us that when we suffer for his name's sake, we are blessed. The history of the church is filled with such people. It gives us example after example. There are some who suffered well for the name of Christ and some who suffered not so well. Perhaps you know of Thomas Cranmer. He was the uh, bishop or archbishop of Canterbury in 1533. That's when he became the archbishop. And he was part of that movement called the Protestant Reformation. And he sought to move the English church away from Roman Catholicism and that influence more to a, a, a more biblical way. And that was called the Reformation. They were reforming the church towards the Protestant Reformation. But as you might know, when Bloody Mary ascended to her throne, with her she brought Roman Catholicism and its teaching. And so she threatened Thomas Cranmer. She threatened death or him with death unless he recanted of his Protestant ways. And so what did he do? He caved, he took a pen, and he signed a formal recantation of the biblical gospel, even saying that the Pope himself had authority in all things, even over the church, that the Pope was the head of the church. See, sometimes Christians do give in, some fail and give in because of pressure Pressures of money and losing that or maybe losing friends or even in Cranmer's case, losing your life. But not this man in John chapter 9. Not the man whom Jesus healed. The man who was blind from birth. He, he goes back and they're saying, is this the same man? He says, I am he. He says, Jesus is the one who healed me. And so the Pharisees now, they call him back in and they want to give, they want to hear more and for him to give an account. And so he's called back in. And as we'll see, it will cost him. It will cost him greatly to give a testimony for Jesus. And as we say sometimes today, to stand for Jesus and his gospel. As we go through this remainder, the remainder of this chapter, we'll see how this man's faith in Christ just, it, it firms, it grows, and he moves along, you know, saying, I don't know much. And then he calls him Lord, even before that prophet. And so it's going to be exciting for us to go through and see what he does and what he says. So what I want to do this morning is, is ask the question, what might it cost you and me to stand for Jesus Christ? What might it cost? There are three things that, that I have drawn from these verses. 
verse 13 through 34. First of all, if we take a stand for Jesus Christ, it very well may bring to us, it may cost antagonism and a pressure to deny Christ. We see that with this man. I mean, we have the unbelievers, the Pharisees in this case. We have the believer. We have this man who was healed, the one who was born blind. And so we have this collision between unbelief and faith. And as we've already seen through the words of Jesus, the unbelief of these Pharisees, well, we know who's behind it. They don't believe themselves, but also in John 8, he says, you are your father, the devil, that which he desires is what you do. And so this really is a satanic attack, satanic opposition being brought to this man who once was blind, but healed by Jesus. And as we see the interaction here, we see really an an anatomy um, of unbelief. We see how unbelief will manifest itself at times. You know, unbelief, we see here, it perverts, it twists God's truth. And uh, that's in verses 13 through 16. And, and what we have here with these, these Pharisees and then the rebuttal or the answer of this man who was healed, we have what one commentator calls the battle of the syllogisms. You know, in logic, there's the categorical syllogism, A plus B equals C. There's a major premise, a minor pre- uh, premise, and then a conclusion. And, and that's what's going on here. And so unbelief will pervert or twist God's truth. So we have new information as as we read through the text. And in verse 14, John tells us that it was on the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened this man's eyes. It was on the Sabbath day. And so if you've read the Gospels, if you've read John up to this point, you know it's going to happen when John tells you that. The Jews are, or the Pharisees, they're going to have an issue with Jesus healing on the Sabbath day day. Um, This has already been an issue with another healing on the part of Jesus back in John 5 and verse 16. And we see it again here. Um, One historian tells us about some of the practices of the Pharisees and the Jews in their day when it came to the Sabbath and these rules, extra biblical rules that God did not give concerning the Sabbath day. Um, For instance, uh, a man could not, he was not allowed to light a lamp on the Sabbath day. If the lamp was already already lit, he could not extinguish that lamp on the Sabbath day, even if it was to spare the wick or the oil or the lamp itself. There's another rule they had, and if, if the person had sandals which were shod with nails, they were not allowed to walk in those sandals because the nails were fairly heavy and it was a burden to do that on the Sabbath. And so it was work. And There are other things we could look at as well. They had all of their their rules. And so their thinking kind of goes like this. Um, All who are truly from God keep the Sabbath day. This man, Jesus, does not keep the Sabbath day because he healed on the Sabbath. Therefore, this man is not from God. But there's a problem with their thinking. There's a faulty premise. And it really would go something like this. All who are from God keep our Sabbath regulations. That's really what they should have said. Their premise was wrong. Jesus was not breaking the Sabbath. 
He says elsewhere, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. There are works of necessity that may be done on the Sabbath, eating and that sort of thing. Works of mercy, helping someone get his ox out of the ditch. And of course, here, this glorious act of mercy of healing this man on Sabbath, tending to the physical needs of someone, bringing complete healing to him. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had their system of self-righteousness. They had their uh, system of works as a way to get back to God. And so they added to the word of God and they did so uh, to the degree that it was nearly impossible to sin in some respects. But Jesus in Matthew 15, 9 says, in vain, they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. A doctrine came from God. It was God's word. But they took the commandments of men that did not come from God and they taught those as being from God. Matthew 15 and verse 9. You know, today, in our context, we may not encounter uh, teachings like the Pharisees have here. But we surely will receive antagonism. We will receive the pressure to deny Christ. Maybe you're out in the world, you're talking about the gospel, and you have to talk about sin. And, you know, even though today we see widespread rebellion in the world, it's not so much that we're in the Bible Belt anymore where people... Um, you know, give credence to the Bible in general, but they don't believe the gospel. You know, sometimes it it could have been in the past that someone would say, yeah, but we're all sinners, aren't we? We see how how that would have an effect on someone or the intended um, conclusion there, the inference, it would be, well, we're all sinners. It's kind of like in the Incredibles when there's that line where um, someone says, When everybody is super, no one is super. So if we're all sinners, nobody's a sinner. That's the the effect, the intended effect with, with that. Or if you take a stand for the truth, you might be questioned, well, does does that really matter? Is it really worth it to lose this or or that because you take a stand for the truth? Or, you know, there's a supply chain problem. And before there was a supply chain problem, I worked at a company that had its own supply chain problem. And, and one guy, he told me, you know, I just have to tell the customer a little white lie. There's no such thing as a little white lie. A lie is a lie. Some sins are more heinous than others, yes. But I was not going to lie to my customers. And so there's that temptation. Unbelief will treat others with disdain. We, we see that here. Uh, these Pharisees, they, they could care less or they couldn't care less about this blind man who was healed. He is simply a pawn in their game of chess. They want to win. And how do they win? By discrediting Jesus. They're after Jesus. They're going to pull this man in and use him any way they can in order to discredit the Son of God who came down from God. I mean, at the end of our text in verse 34, they tell him, they say, you are completely born in sins. And are you teaching us? Well, this goes back to that question. You know, the disciples were asking about this man born blind. Who sinned, his parents or him, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither is the case. He was born blind for the glory of God. And yet these Pharisees, they tell him, they, they injure him. They tell him, you were born because of sin. You were, you were born this way, blind. 
Well, they held him in contempt and disdain. Unbelief we see here as well. It stubbornly refuses to admit the truth of the gospel. If you look at verse 16, therefore some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can this man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. Again, if, if they can prove, prove that Jesus did not perform this miracle, then they can discredit Jesus and discredit his gospel. And so that's why they're going to call in this man's parents in just a moment to go that route. But they will not confess that Jesus is the one. They won't even mention his name. They say, who is this or this man, this one? They will not confess Jesus. They will not confess what he has done. Remember to confess means to agree. To agree that such is the case. And so that's why the Bible talks about salvation and and says if we agree with what the word of God says, if as Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your own heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you agree to this, if you believe it, but they wouldn't do this. Unbelief will not do it. And before we move on, I just want to ask the question or, or to say, there's a little bit of the Pharisee in all of us, is there not? I mean, we, we may not deny Christ. We do not deny Christ as Christians. But still, there is a little bit of the Pharisee in us. As uh, Jesus tells the parable in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke gives us a key to it at the beginning of verse 9 of Luke 18. Luke says, As he, Jesus, spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And so the Pharisees, he thanks God in his prayer. He says, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I do this. I do this. I do this. The Pharisee is not like the publican who says, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. The Pharisee trusts in in himself and he despises others because they don't measure up to his unbiblical, extra biblical standard. And so we can do that. Might be even a cultural standard. And we think our cultural standard is better. Or years ago, you know, I know people that went to Christian school and and uh, the boys were not allowed to have their hair touch the collar. And the girl had to wear, you know, skirts down to their ankles. And, and if they were caught going to the movie theater, they might get a demerit because you never know which movie they're going to go see. And someone might think they're going to see a bad movie. All these things. And we have to be careful and to confess when we play the Pharisee. So if we take a stand for Christ, it very well may cost us antagonism. And there might be the pressure to deny Christ. Second, as we see with this man, if we take a stand for Christ, it very well may bring disappointment in family and friends. They say blood is thicker than water. But really not when it comes to the gospel of Jesus and Jesus himself. 
Friends may very well forsake you. Your family may turn on you. You might find yourself in heated debates that result in bitterness. As Christians, we are to be winsome. We are to be graceful in our discussions. And and yet we are to stand our ground. That's what this man no doubt experienced. So they, they pull in his parents. And uh, they ask him in verse 19, is this your son who was born blind? You say he was born blind. And, and uh, remember, the question had already been asked, is this the same guy? Maybe he has a twin. Maybe we got it wrong. Or maybe there's something fuzzy going on here. Well, they say this is our son. But did you know what they said down in verse 21? In verse 20, they say, we know this is our son. In verse 21, they say, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Let him answer. They don't want to give the answer. They don't want to be held accountable to these Pharisees. Now, I think the implication is they lied. If you look down at verse Um, Is it 22? It says there his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. Why did they fear the Jews? For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he, Jesus, was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. So the Pharisees already had let it be known that if you say that Jesus is the Messiah, if he is the Christ, if he is the anointed one promised by God in the Old Testament, that is to say he is of God, sent of God, you will be cast out of the synagogue. And it's not like you could just go to another synagogue down the road. Because if you were cast out of the synagogue or excommunicated, it would mean social hardship It would mean that you would be cast out of the religious society of God, the Israelites. And it could have meant as well that you would experience economic hardship. And so his parents faced with that and in fear of that and the Pharisees, they just put it all on their son and said, we really don't know how he was healed. We don't know who this man is. No doubt this man could see and could see his parents' actions. Now, before we're too hard on them, remember Cranmer? He signed that recantation. It wasn't right. He was in fear of his life. He signed it. And we should also note here that just maybe we too have had opportunities to stand for Christ and have not. We could have spoken a word. Maybe we weren't called upon. There was a conversation and a scripture comes to mind. A truth comes to mind. And we remain silent. Well, what these parents did say did make it harder to deny that Jesus was of God. How do I say that? 
because they, they did confirm that this was their son, that he was blind, and he has been healed. So the miracle is unquestionable. There's no doubting that it took place. According to their own law, they would have to say that it did because they had two or three or more witnesses. But as you think about what these parents do, maybe some of you have been burned by close family, extended family, friends, co-workers of the world even. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 35? He talked there. He said he came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword, to turn a man against his father, against his daughter, even his mother. Man against his father, daughter against her mother. And by the way, when we think of Cranmer and how he signed that recantation, when he did that, he turned his back on his brethren who were reformed and reforming the church, even renouncing their teachings and denouncing Luther as a heretic himself. And so when we take a stand for Christ, it can bring disappointment. It can bring disappointment from family and friends. There's one more thing as we think about this in our text as we finish the passage here. If we take a stand for Jesus, it very well might bring abuse in various forms. That's in verses 24 through 34 there. So the man is brought back in, verse 24, before the Pharisees. And they say to him, give God the glory. We know this man is a sinner. Well, that phrase, give God the glory, goes all the way back to Joshua chapter, I think it's 19 or 7 in verse 19. And and that's where there was the sin of Achan. Remember Achan, they plundered the Egyptians. Or not the Egyptians, I'll get it right. They, They plundered the Canaanites and he kept some of the spoils and he buried them. And it was revealed that he had done this. He wasn't supposed to. And he was lying about it. And so he was called upon to tell the truth. Give God the glory by telling the truth. And so they're telling him, tell the truth. See, there's pressure. They're calling upon him and his conscience. It would have been to lie. Then in verse 26, they ask the question again. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? You know, was this some trick? What did he do to you? And, and what they're hoping is maybe they'll catch him in a contradiction. You know, if there's a criminal, he's being questioned. The officers, the interrogators, they'll ask him different questions in different forms uh, repeatedly, hoping to find, if he's guilty, hoping to find a contradiction in his story. So they asked this man the questions again and again and again. And so there in verse 27, it's evident he becomes impatient with them. He answered and he said, I told you already. You did not listen. And then he asked, do you want to become his disciples? Of course, they probably were not very happy with that. And so in the following verses, We see here that he boldly stands for Christ, progressing in his faith in Christ and and, uh, taking that stand. And 
You know, after he asked that question, they say that they are Moses's disciple, that this man is Jesus's disciple, this man's disciple. They won't utter his name. And there you have um, their system of self-righteousness pitted against Jesus's gospel, the gospel of full grace, the grace of God. And so this man, he, he gives a simple account at the beginning. He says that it is Jesus who put clay on his eyes and he washed and he says, now I see. In verse 17, he calls Jesus a prophet. In verse 25, he says, one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. And he says in verse 31, Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. So he calls Jesus a worshiper of God. He's saying now he is from God. And he says um, that this miracle is an answer to prayer. And so here he is using that that logical um, reasoning that the Pharisees sought to use, but he's using it soundly and truthfully. Because the Bible says in the Old Testament and the Psalms and so forth, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Psalm 66, 18. And so if Jesus, who prayed for the healing of this man and then healed this man, if he was heard of God, then he is of God. That's good logic. And also, if you note what he says, he says, really, there's there's. No healing like this ever. Verse 32, since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of the one who was born blind. So he knew his Bible, he knew his Old Testament, and he was able to use that in giving his defense of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it should be that way with us today as we read the Bible, we get knowledge and Over time, we get more and more understanding as we prayerfully do so and read the Bible. And we're able to give an account for Jesus and take that stand. But what did it get this man? He he stood his ground. He stood for Jesus. What did it get him? Got him abuse. It got him excommunication from the synagogue. That's there in verse 34. They answer. And they said to him, you are completely born in sins. That is a scoffing. That is making fun of him. That is a dig in him. And are you teaching us? Who are you to teach us? We have our credentials. You know, we who are leaders in the church, we need to be careful. I need to be careful not to be prideful and arrogant, not to think that all the truth that I do know I came up with. No, the Bible says, what do you have that you did not receive? And here they make this man feel worthless. It's abuse of authority. And they cast him out. They excommunicated him from the synagogue. A little later in John 16, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He's preparing them because he's going to go to the cross. He's going to be resurrected and go back to heaven with his heavenly father. After that, he's preparing his disciples and he's giving us words today 
to carry on with the work of the church and even as um, Christians living the Christian life. And in John 16, in verse 2, he says to those early disciples, those apostles, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Even though this man here was expelled and excommunicated, he lost the synagogue. His loss was actually his gain. That's why the Apostle Paul put it in Philippians 3. He talks about his conversion to Jesus Christ. He talks about self-righteousness within the, the system of the scribes and Pharisees and how he was the cream of the crop there. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And yet he says in Philippians 3 and verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. In other words, I had all of these accomplishments, all of these things I could boast about. Really, I couldn't boast, but I did. And I lost all of those things because I went after Christ. Christ offers me the gospel of grace. And even when I went after him, I lost all of those things. And this man following Jesus, standing for Jesus, loses his membership in what was then really the apostate church of God. But it's complete gain for him. He gets Jesus. He gets a restored relationship with God. He gets the forgiveness of sins and he gets the church of Jesus Christ. And so if this has happened to you, if it does happen to you, you need to be mindful of this man. He stood his ground. He was excommunicated. He lost that social enjoyment of the people of God. Perhaps he was a beggar already. Perhaps he had further hardship financially. We don't know. He became an outcast. They would have to have a service in his name casting him out of the synagogue. When the world or family or friends cast you out and you're clinging to Christ, you have everything. Everything. So whatever happened to Thomas Cranmer, he signed that recantation of his faith in Christ and what we call the Reformed faith, the Protestant faith, what we call the true religion. Well, he did sign it, but um, what you may not know is that Bloody Mary still intended to have him executed anyway. So she arranged for him to give this public speech talking about his, maybe his reconversion to Roman Catholicism, and she was going to make a spectacle of him and after that, she was going to have him put to death. Well, he went before a crowd up on to a podium and he gave that speech he was supposed to give. From Mary's perspective, talking favorably about Roman Catholicism. From his perspective, here's what he did. He talked about his faith in God, his faith in Christ his faith in the Bible and the Word of God. And after that, to the horror of church authorities, he said, and as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all his false doctrine. He recanted of his recantation. 
And note how he did it. There he was to be burned at the stake. They lit the wood on fire. He was close to the fire. And as the fire grew and the flames came up, he took the hand with which he signed that recantation and he put it in the fire first as an example to those who were by him and to Christians through the ages of his courage and his repentance and his regret of denying Christ. Even Peter denied Christ three times, but Jesus restored him three times, right? Well, how about us? When the opportunity has come and we have failed Christ, we haven't testified of the Lord Jesus probably out of fear. We should repent of that. We should regret that. And like Cranmer, follow the example of this man who had been healed, the one who was born blind, as he stood firm in the name of Christ. You might be asking the question, that's, that's great, Kevin, but, but how do you do that? Turn with me to Hebrews 12, and we'll finish here. How do you do this? What is it that fuels such a stance for Jesus and his holy word and gospel? Well, in chapter 11, the author of Hebrews has been talking about faith, example after example, Old Testament person after Old Testament person. In chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those faithful saints in the Old Testament, he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How can we do it? We run the race well. How do we do that? By looking unto Jesus, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, following his example. What did he do? He despised the shame of the cross. He despised its suffering, but he looked beyond beyond it. He looked at what was to come, that joy and that glory that he would receive. And so we have to believe, of course, know the promises of God and believe that this life is not it. Even if we die, We shall go to be with the Lord and one day have a resurrected body and be with the full number of the saints of the living God, where we will all together enjoy the complete and full presence of God and all of its glory and joy. That's the key. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength as we look unto Jesus to get out of bed in the morning, to fulfill our callings, to make it day after day, week after week, year after year, with our commitment to you and your son, our Lord Jesus. And when called upon, when we have the opportunity to give a word, a testimony, even to explain the gospel and engage in evangelism, May we not let you down. May we stand for the Lord Jesus. Though it cost us greatly, we pray in his name. Amen.